0: So the Pilbara strike uh, is extraordinary struggle for liberation that was waged by Aboriginal workers in the Pil- Pilbara region of Western Australia from nineteen forty six to nineteen forty nine. And it was really, in many ways, it was the first chapter of um, you know, uh, ongoing struggle. Uh, Many never went back to the stations, established an extraordinary self-determining movement that actually took control of a number of stations and run them under Aboriginal control and cooperative mining ventures as well, well through the 1950s and 60s, Um, set up some of the first bilingual schools in Australia. It's a very, very inspiring uh, region, you know, full of of a rich history um, of struggle. It's often talked about as being sort of like the first strike of Aboriginal workers, that that's not the case, actually almost as soon as Aboriginal people were employed uh, in this, you know, by in, in, the, in the colony, uh, they resisted by striking or absconding from work. You know, the, the actual power that workers have got to refuse to work, to go on strike, you know, came with wage labour really. Um, You know, I mean, even in the uh, early period of the colonisation of Sydney, uh, there's stories about uh, Aboriginal people who, you know, grew up on stations or working on stations, you know, absconding from those stations, um, taking firearms to resistance fighters, joining resistance fighters, you know, um, to wage, you know, to wage war and attack, you know, stations in outer Sydney. Um, So there's, you know, long been a history of the, you know, this sort of relationship between the position of Aboriginal people actually as workers and what that gives them, you know, in terms of a particular sort of power, um, in, you know, in the economy and you know, and resistance um, against against colonialism and against racism um, in Victoria in the 19th century. There's records of Aboriginal workers going on strike on reserves in the second half of the of the 19th century. Uh, just after the uh, First World War, there's records of a strike of Aboriginal workers on Palm Island, um, a prison colony that was set up, um, and in and through the depression. Uh, period in New South Wales, there was a wave of strikes actually across um, Aboriginal reserves against the horrific conditions that people were forced into. Very often Aboriginal people who had experience, you know, as union members working, you know, in the mainstream workforce who in the Depression were forced back onto reserves and took the union tactics and the consciousness, you know, of the collective uh, working class power you can have as workers and and use those tactics to fight against the protection system they were under, culminating in the, you know, extraordinary Kamra Gunja walk-off. In, in 1939 that I'd encourage comrades to, to go and have a look at. And in many ways, the actions of a lot of those, um, you know, Koori workers here on the East Coast through the 1930s to build solidarity with the unions, you know, and with the socialist left, Uh, laid the basis, actually, for a lot of the incredible solidarity that was to come from the union movement for for the strike of the Pilbara workers in 1946. But none of that, what I've said, takes away from what really was a groundbreaking uh, strike and the scale of the strike, the level of organisation, the way that it managed to fuse, you know, like working class struggle, collective struggle, you know, as workers at the point of production, you know, with, um, you know, Aboriginal pride, pride in culture, you know, assertion, you know, of black power to actually break a regime, you know that we, that had put, you know that was put on Aboriginal people and on Aboriginal workers. You know it really is extraordinary. And hopefully, I can convey, you know, a little bit of that uh, through, you know, through through some of this talk today. Um, so in the Pilbara in 19 you know 46 where we're where we're looking you know frontier warfare is really in the living memory of the people that were there you know there was massacres um, in the northwest of Western Australia well into the 1920s and you know and horrific police brutality con- continued uh, through you know through to 1946 so you know Aboriginal people were subjected to a regime of absolute police terror right so in 1946 you've got a situation where an area the size of Great Britain that is the Pilbara is now accommodating two million sheep, right? And Aboriginal people lived essentially as slaves or the pastoralists who owned these massive stations and relied on the super exploitation of Aboriginal labour in, able to, in order to run the stations and make the profits, the huge profits that they were making on those stations. The crucial thing was that controlled their labour and, you know, and, and really you know, dictated the, you know, their life circumstances and the level of exploitation was that people were not allowed to leave their allotted stations. Right. So under the Native Affairs Act, you're on a station, you don't like the boss, there's literally nothing you can do about it. You want to leave the police will round you up, give you a flogging and take you back to that station. So that that's slavery. Right. You actually can't. You can't leave. You can't be, you know, the freedom that we have under capitalism to sell our labor to any employer, you know, is not you know available to these, you know, to these Aboriginal workers. They're bonded to a particular station barely paid cash at all, living in you know, living in terrible conditions. So Peter Coffin, who was one of the important Mungu strike leaders, they used the word Mungo. it was a self, you know, is a self-referential term used by Aboriginal people in the region, it was one of the leading Mungu strikers. You know, he says on a great movie you should all watch, How the, how the West Was Lost says it was a big story all right, that strike. We were just black to be used as slaves on the stations. We got no proper pay, no proper houses, just a bit of tin, a bit of paper bark, a bit of blanket down in the river. That's where we lived. Things are different now, but that's because of the fight we had, that big bloody battle. Right, so, you know, so, yeah, you're paid in Russians, no paling, in horrible conditions, and as I said, the police terrorism's extreme, right? So one of the the tactics they would consistently use if the pastoralists complained that, you know, the blacks on their station were getting a bit rowdy was they'd come before dawn and actually raid the camp and shoot all the dogs in the camp, right? They had the power to do that. That was sort of consistently done, you know, to absolutely, absolutely terrify people. Yeah, arbitrary violence, beatings, floggings, uh, the use of neck chains, actually all the way through the strike. Aboriginal people were arrested and put in chains and marched, you know, sort of long distances. So really, really, you know, really, really extraordinary, really, really extraordinary repression, you know. And the only way that that repression was able to be broken was with the, you know, the actual power and the power Aboriginal people had as workers to strike and the solidarity that actually came from the broader working-class movement, including the non-Indigenous, you know, working-class movement, the organised trade union movement. And that, you know, that solidarity campaign was led by by socialists, by communists, actually, by the Communist Party of Australia, the major socialist organisation which existed at the time, and a central character in the Strikes a man by the name of Don MacLeod, who was a white man, and he was a communist, and he was living, you know, in the Pilbara, you know, growing up in the northern part of Western Australia, and was living in the Pilbara. MacLeod had been very radicalised by the experience of the Second World War, and he'd actually joined in Port Hedland there was an organisation that you know communists were involved in that was called the Anti-Fascist League and uh, you know during the Second World War there was campaigning against racism and had a number of Aboriginal members people of mixed descent there's the racist term half-caste there was actual like, like a full-blown caste system operating in Australia so the full-blood workers were treated with you know even more barbarity and then there was you know gradations of rights depending on you know how much white blood you had you know so, so we, we wouldn't not say half-caste today, and it's an offensive term, but in this circumstance, you have to discuss it because it's actually a legal category. So you'd have these, like, half-caste workers actually form their own association in Port Hedland, you know, during the Second World War to advocate for their interests, because during the war, there was an intensification of racism. Actually, a lot of the so-called half-caste workers who had jobs in the town previously had their permits to work revoked from during the war, and new ordinances were brought in to keep Aboriginal people, including mixed-descent people, actually out of certain areas they'd been allowed in previously because of the government's paranoia, because of the racist nationalism that came with the war. So you actually had an intensification of the racism and there was a fight against it. And that's how MacLeod became exposed, was actually radicalised by a number of, you know, activists, Aboriginal activists actually in Port Hedland, you know, protesting against the conditions they were subject to during the Second World War. Um, He was like a bit of an itinerant labourer, you know, so he'd go out and do some mining prospecting or he'd go out and do some, you know, fixing some fences and a station. And he applied for a permit to employ Aboriginal workers. And it was granted. Uh, They wish they didn't do it later, but at the time, the Native Affairs Department actually granted McLeod a permit to employ Aboriginal workers, which he did. And he employed two uh, men in particular, Clancy McKenna and Bin Bin Dooley, you know, who were extraordinary Aboriginal men who went on, went on to play this you know, amazing role in leading their people in this, in this struggle. And it was in his relationship with them that he came to understand far more deeply the, um, the system of, of, of exploitation that was existing on the stations and started to discuss with them what might be done about it. And actually, it was by building on some of the experiences that Clancy, you know, uh, McKenna and Bimbin Dooley had actually had in in having stoppages They hadn't conceived of them as strikes, but they had sort of, you know, refused to go up for the muster for work that morning because of the way the boss had treated one of their wives or something like that. McLeod said, you know what that is? That's a strike. And this is what's actually used internationally by workers. And there started to be a deeper discussion about how that might be used as a more, you know, a, a, a tactic, you know, a more generalised tactic that could actually that could actually fight the system. Um, there was an extraordinary meeting sometime during the Second World War. We don't know exactly when it is. McLeod said it was 1942. It was probably more like 19, 1944, um, where there was a decision had been taken by... Um, uh, um, Uh, Dooley and and, and Clancy that they wanted to have this strike and they had a huge big meeting where they actually summoned a whole lot of senior Aboriginal people from right across the region, all the way into the Northern Territory actually people came from and it's described at at this place called Skull Springs, it's described as a mini United Nations, right? There were people there speaking 23 different Aboriginal languages. It was all through the song song lines and the ceremonial patterns that people had previous to colonisation, were utilised to actually bring people together at an important ceremonial time. And McLeod was the only white guy there, right? And they had this deep meeting, translation going on for all the people, speaking all the different languages. And they made a decision there that when the war ended, after the war ended, on the 1st of May, International Workers' Day, they were going to launch a general strike of, of pastoral workers across the Pilbara in order to break the slave regime that they were under. And they began to prepare for this strike. And it's an amazing story. So these two guys, you know, um, McKenna and and, and Bin Bin somehow managed to get around this enormous area, um, you know, of the Pilbara, you know, undercover because they're being hounded by the police who are hearing, you know, what's going on, you know, know, starting to get some whispers of what's going on, persecuting um, these men on on a bike. And then on a horse, and then when the police hamstrung the horse on foot, they actually go from station to station building an awareness about this strike. And the little tactic that they used was they made up calendars on the back of um, labels that were going to go on jar tins, and people would have cross off the days leading up to the 1st of May. And so when they got to the 1st of May, they would know that everyone was going to go out on strike on that day. And so if the police, and they did, police actually raided, you know, one of their camps, they wouldn't know what these things were because they actually look like jam tin labels, right? But, you know, they've got these calendars. So this surreptitious sort of, you know, organisation drive goes on, you know, through, you know, through the bush. And they managed to build an enormous amount of support for the strike you know, that was going to come. In fact, people started going early, right? So at the start of the strike, st- the start of the shearing season was in, in about April. So just after Easter is when they start to start to do the shearing, right, and actually in April, a whole lot, a whole lot of workers, some of these workers actually start going on strike, recognising, you know what, this is the time. This is when we're needed. We've been called, you know, for these big musters and these big shearing thing. Now we're gonna go on strike. And one, immediately improvements in their conditions on a number of stations in, in, in April of, of 1946. Oh. That generalised on the 1st of May, and there's an estimate there's about 800 Mangu workers, you know, actually did refuse work on that day. There was also, very significantly, a widespread strike of Aboriginal workers, including so-called half-caste workers, in in Marble Bar and in Port Hedland, the two sort of, you know, town sort of centres in in the region. So a very solid strike happens and is immediately brutally repressed, right? So all the leaders, McLeod, Dooley, Clancy, they're all arrested and and they're thrown in jail. Uh, The police terrorise the striking workers in the towns and threaten them with jail if they don't go back to work. And there's a a sort of a period of disorientation, if you like, where the leaders are locked up, they're not quite sure what to do. People sort of start gravitating, you know, sort of start gravitating back to work. Um, The campaign then kicked off down in the south, you know, southern areas of of Western Australia, particularly in Perth. There was no reporting on what was going on in the WA press at the time because it was controlled by the pastoralists. But the Communist Party had a paper to Workers' Star that was promoting what was was going on. And there was opposition not just from, you know, not just from communists, you know, but they actually held a demonstration in Fremantle on the 18th of of May on the the waterfront there, you know, the place where people would gather for for political meetings against the arrest of the strike leaders. And calling for recognition of the strikers' demands, and then at the end of May, there's a major meeting. The committee to defend native rights is formed. That's a you know a united front initiative. So there's left, labor people there. There's religious, you know, sort of you know progressive sort of people there. Feminists were there. You know, you've got this big uh, committee. Very importantly, actually, the Communist Party had done a lot of work through the 1920s and 30s supporting activism of Noongar people in the southeast of Western Australia. You know, and there had been you know organising efforts for Aboriginal rights in the southwest. Um, you know, uh, before this. So you've actually got a network of Noongar activists who also swing into action, right, and start acting as spokespeople, you know, for the strike that's going on in the Pilbara down, you know, down in Perth. So, you know, some names that are recognised in Noongar activism today, they're all descended from, you know, people who were, you know, who were sort of speaking up, um, who, were, who were speaking up at the time. Okay. In the northwest, west um, the strike starts to regroup and um the the way they do this is they use the port headland race meeting which happens in july which is the biggest day on the calendar for all the pastoralists they all come into port headland it's a big race they go and have a hall you know in the night you know this is the the biggest day on the calendar and they all bring their blacks with them you know so they can you know have servants on the way and so that you know they can be looked after or whatever so you know aboriginal people are also coming in from the entire region Coming into, port, you know, coming into Port Hedland and they conference there and they decide there that they're going to regroup and take, you know, they're going to take another stand. So I didn't tell a little bit of the story, which was, you know, the campaign actually did manage to win freedom for the strike leaders. So, you know, some of these demands that were coming out, resolutions that were being sent from unions, from Labor Party branches, from church people, things like this, protesting about the treatment, you actually get, you know, um, you, you get freedom for the strike leaders and they manage to reconvene with their people in Port Hedland for the race meeting. And that's when you have, it's, a, you know, it's in, there's a book called On Red Earth Walking, which goes through this in absolute detail and you get real chills reading this part, right? There's this, you know, they, you think about these people, the level of police persecution and harassment they have lived with their entire life, right? Police can do whatever they want and get away with it. And at Port Hedland in July of 1946, they say we are not going back to the stations. They actually march inside the town limits of Port Hedland. They're excluded from the town of Port Hedland under racist segregation legislation that existed at the time. They march into the excluded area, set up a camp at what's called Port Hedland Two Mile, sit down and say we're not leaving. This is our strike camp, right? Open defiance of the segregation regime. The cops come and say, right, we're going to arrest you all. And every time the police went to make a move to start arresting someone, everyone would move and surround them, right? So there was this act of sort of, you know, non-violent civil disobedience where they actually were linking arms and preventing the police doing mass arrests. Police were threatening to shoot at that time people and they stood firm, refused to move. And it was a major breakthrough in terms of the consciousness of people at that time. Police power is not absolute. Right, and there is no way in hell the police, you know, um, you know, would have acted in the way they did in terms of backing off on that day if they didn't also know there was a lot of people watching right around the country. Right, they were getting resolutions of support. There was unions, there were supporters, you know, who were willing to actually stand up. So they couldn't arrest the mob. So they arrested Don McLeod again. Right. So what do they do? The Māngū they march from the two-mile camp on the police station in the town of Port Hedland. And again, it's an extraordinary thing to read about. Port Hedland shut itself, right? All the shutters go up on the, you know, everyone disappears from the streets, all the shutters go up on the the shops. And you've got this march of Aboriginal workers into the middle of Port Hedland where they're actually not allowed to be, right? To confront the police station and demand that Don McLeod's free. When they get there, they realise, Actually, they've already freed McLeod, right? And he turns up and says, "What are you guys doing? We've come to free you, Don." You know, oh, "Well, I am free." Right. Well, let's get back to business in terms of organising the strike. And so this is this is this is a real sort of sort of turning point. And in some ways, I'll have to you know sort of change up the pace a little bit of the of the talk um, from there because it's it then becomes a long and protracted struggle. Right, so you get you, you get a situation where they establish two major strike camps. One that's called the Twelve Mile Strike Camp, and the others um, I can't pronounce it. I've seen Muliara. Um, there, there's a uh, traditional name for another strike camp that they that they set up as well. And they become the two main bases where the strikers stay and continue to agitate, to pull their family, pull their kin, pull, you know, all the Aboriginal people that are there off the, off the remaining stations. And that what the other thing that sort of happens over this, this sort of like two-year period where there's a waxing and waning in the intensity of the struggle, the strike camps are, are constant and the people work very, very hard to feed themselves. They go out and get, you know, go out and get kangaroo skin, they can sell. They, you know, living off bush meat and bush, you know, bush foods the other amazing thing they do is they actually prospect right so they sit there and they get little bits of minerals gold and you know other other minerals right and sell them in order and pearl shell um you know uh it was also another commodity that they were sort of gathering and selling So they're sort of working really hard in these cooperative ventures to try and support themselves and to to sustain their strike camp. But the other thing that sort of starts to happen over these two years is they set up what they call the Northwestern uh, Native Workers Association that actually starts to negotiate some reasonable agreements with some of the pastoralists, right, who actually can't deal with not having any Aboriginal workers on their stations because no Aboriginal workers, no station. Right. So even though the Native Affairs Department is really clear, you cannot, you know, follow these guys' demands, one of their main demands was, we want the right to appoint John McLeod as our representative to actually negotiate on our behalf. Right. And the Native Affairs Department was like, there is no way we're negotiating with the communists. They're like, well, that's our representative. So you're negotiating with him or we're staying on strike. You know, so that was one big standoff. But then, you know, informally, a lot of the squatters were saying, "Right, well, we'll deal with this. You know, we'll deal with McLeod, we'll deal with this Native Workers Association. We'll give you, you know, an increase in your in your in your um in your in your pay or your ration or whatever or whatever it might be." Um, but the fact that they could pull workers off, and the fact that they were getting this, you know, growing control it was a major check on the power of the police that had never existed before. So in this period, for example, children stopped getting stolen out of the station camps because they know how provocative that is, how deeply it's felt, the pain of having the children taken away. They're like, we don't want to provoke that mob. They're on the station. They've got a little agreement with the pastoralists. We know if we're going and take kids away, they'll be out on strike again. So no children get taken for the entire time, right? So that sort of a power comes. They try and actually break up. You know, they say, okay, we'll gazette this area as somewhere where you can't camp anymore, so you can't camp there. And they say, do you really want to do that? You do that and we'll pull this station and this station. Oh, okay. Okay. Back off and we'll let you camp on that little area. So the fact that they've actually got this power suddenly means the power of the native affairs, the power of the cops is not absolute. You know, they're able to, you know, they're able to actually issue some demand, you know, and actually, you know, and actually get some, and actually get some, and actually get some gains. Okay, so that's, you know, this is a situation that sort of goes on for, that, that, that goes on for about two years. All right. Um, the other important thing uh, that was going on that really, you know, sort of strengthened the hand of the, of the Munger at this time uh, was solidarity from other sections of workers. You know, and I think it's an it's, it's interesting thing to th- think about theoretically, right? You've got an intense segregation racist regime that's operating to keep black and white apart. It's actually illegal to fraternise. The charge they're putting on McLeod the when they're locking him up is literally fraternising with Aboriginal people. Right? He's getting arrested and locked up for going to meetings with Aboriginal people. That in itself was illegal at the time, right? So the intensity with which the system was enforcing the racist division between black and white cannot be underestimated. But capitalism requires workers to cooperate, right? So even though the law forces you apart, actually somehow black and white have got to work together to get the wool off the sheep get that wool onto the transport, get it to the wharf and get it out the wharf. So black and white are actually talking together, are actually working together. And that became the basis on which solidarity could be built. So for example, right, the Australian Workers Union, the AWU, represents most most workers, certainly the workers in the pastoral industry, a lot of the workers in the shops and other smaller industries in this area. They're a rotten right wing union that lined up with the Native Affairs Department and the West Australian government to try and smash the strike. That's what happened. The local Port Hedland branch of the AWU, where this flickers of solidarity that I've described before was operating, actually passed consistently resolutions in favour of the strike. And AWU workers on the railways defied orders from the Native Affairs Department, which said you are not allowed to transport any of these Aboriginal strikers on your trains. They just defied it. And the people could ride the trains, right? Because of the solidarity from black and white workers alike, actually in the actually in the AWU. It's another story about the waterfront in 1947, at uh, the Port Hedland waterfront, Don McLeod's employed there, right? And their right wing, rotten AWU bosses want McLeod out. So they actually start agitating to strip McLeod of his membership of the AWU to, you know, stop trying to stop his agitation. But he's got enough support on the job that that's actually rejected by, by votes on the job. And he stays on, right? Bye. The police also made a move with Native Affairs to put pressures on the the wharf to sack the existing Aboriginal workers off the wharf as a response to McLeod's efforts to bring some of the striking Aboriginal workers onto the wharf to earn some money that could support the strike camps. So they said, OK, if you're going to keep McLeod, then all the black workers that are working there are sacked, even some of the ones that have have worked there for quite some time, right? And there were stoppages on the waterfront in Port Hedland to demand, no, we want Aboriginal people to be able to work with alongside us. Don't underestimate the boss, the, the right-wing uh, uh, leadership of the AWU. They actually flew to Port Hedland, right? To not, I don't know if they flew, however they got there. They went to Port Hedland to try to undermine this decision, this un, this decision to go on strike to, to, to reinstate the Aboriginal workers and actually had some success for a number of months. So there was this tussle between the right-wing leadership, no doubt right-wing conservatives on the job, but also white workers and black workers they worked alongside for many years who could recognise what was going on and see the importance of the solidarity. And I guess that's the last story I'll tell, which is really the the action of solidarity that basically ended the strike also came, you know, from the the maritime industry. So at the start of 1949, uh, the strikers, the marungu, they decide we're going to escalate. Right? This is a good, we've got a big bumper shearing season coming up. This is our chance to actually go on the offensive, you know, and try and, and try and force the uh, Native Affairs Department to to to, um, to accede to our demands. OK, so they start trying to call, summon people off the stations. They try and start to call people for a more general stoppage. The police respond with really intense brutality. So there's a um, one particular incident where 30 uh, striking workers were rounded up at revolver point. Like they drew their guns on people, you know, forced them into jail at Port Headland. You know, and by, I think it was about, you know, uh, April or June, uh, sorry, May or June, you've actually got uh, 43 um uh, of the strikers mocked up in Port Hedland um, and, uh, you know, this message is going down to the union supporters, you know, and the others that have been that are supporting this strike. It was at this particular time that the Siemens Union, who was led by a, a man named Ron Hurd who was in the Communist Party, really interesting guy, this guy had actually gone to Spain to fight on the side of the anti-fascists with the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War, so someone who's not shy of a fight, you know, and, and certainly, you know, anti-racist. You know, so he's the leader of the Siemens Union at the time, and they convene meetings in response to the forty-three arrests, and they say release them immediately, or we're going to put a ban on loading any wool from Port Hedland, right? There's slave stations operating in Port Hedland. You're going to get no wool out of the port of Port Hedland until you until you release until you release these workers, you know. And and in response to that, I'll, I'll just read it. Actually, this is the um, it's a little headline from the Workers' Star at the time. There's a there's a there's the uh, resolution they passed on July the first. of of 1949. Said, in view of the refusal of the state government to cease the imprisonment and persecution of the Aboriginal strikers at Marble Bar who are fighting against slave wages and conditions, this meeting declares on fr- from July 1st a ban on all shipments of wool from those stations in the Port Hedland, Marvin Bar, and Nulligan area, um, which refused to sign similar agreements to those entered into between the Northwest Native Workers Association and the management of Edgar and Limestone stations. So they said we've got some good agreements on these stations, we want them right across, right? So unless you get that, this ban will remain in force until A, the state government and its police and Native Affairs Department cease persecuting and jailing Native workers and release all those present in jail. B, Native workers are granted the right to organise and elect their own representatives who will be recognised by the uh, Native Affairs Department and the police. This made in protest against the hip- hypocritical statements by the Minister for Native Affairs, Ross MacDonald, that they are concerned... Um, Uh, with the welfare of the Northwest Natives and declares that the policy of the government is only to provide slave labour for the stations. Such an inhuman policy discredits the name of Australia throughout the whole world. We congratulate the the strikers on their courageous stand and urge the trade union movement to support them in their fight to win decent wages and conditions. Okay, so they say July 1st the ban's going to start and they stuck to it, right? Like they stuck to it. They actually let most of the workers out of jail in response to this. They said, okay, they're going to ban the wall and let the, you know, and let the strikers out of jail. But they stuck to their guns and they said, that's not our only demand. We're saying you've actually got to meet the strikers' demands. And it's really inspiring. There was a group of seamen actually on the SS Dorigo is sailing to Port Hedland, right, and they have a meeting and they take a vote. This is our union's policy. We're enforcing this policy, right? And they hear about it at Port Hedland. This is what's going to happen. And the AWU bosses say to their workers there, you're going to break this ban. You're going to go onto the Dorigo, and you're going to, you know, you're you're going to do the business. And the rank and file workers, of the AWU at Port Hedland, they said, "Well, even if our union won't support the strike, there's no way in hell we're doing seamens' work. It's not going to happen, right?" And that was that was the end of it. That was the end of the game. <laughs> They're not actually going to be able to get wool out of Port Hedland. And there was a native affairs um, there was a native affairs uh, official. i uh, me just go his name here, um, Elliot Smith. He actually sits down with Don McLeod and negotiates uh, the terms, right? And says they're gonna accept the central demands. The main thing is accepting McLeod as the representative and recognizing that the, the, that workers association and bringing in the conditions that exist on those stations can be brought in and negotiated for right across Western Australia. So right, you viewed the strikes one, right? Like the main thing that happened, the thing that was the absolute turning point at that moment that never went back was they lost their power and gave up their power to confine people on particular stations. They'd lost that power on the ground and they never tried to bring it back, right? So at this point, Aboriginal workers are actually able to move a lot more freely between the stations than they had been in 1946 already, right? Actually, what happened was they reneged on this deal. So the Siemens Union and that, they said, right, okay, we'll start loading the wool again and that other and thing. There's this big backlash, you know, this guy, Elliot Smith, gets absolutely grilled, you can't do deals with McLeod, what the hell have you done? You know, the deal's off, but the truth of the matter is the horse had already bolted, right? The the, the the squatters were realising Native Affairs couldn't keep control anymore, were doing deals, you know, well above the conditions that were existing in 1946, and people had lost control in terms of being able to keep people on, on particular stations. So that was the key victory. They didn't get award wages, right? There was no repeal of the racist laws which said Aboriginal people should be paid in award wages. That didn't come until the late 1960s, okay? So there was not, you know, ultimate victory in that sense. But what was going on on the ground had absolutely been broken. There's no way the squatters could exercise the same level of dictatorial power over people and people were able to negotiate, you know, arrangements for themselves and their family on the stations that they were a lot more happy with. The other thing that was quite important and it's you know a whole other story that i haven't even started to go into today and that was the movement that existed at this time and really grew up through the strike of all of those cooperative ventures pulling their money and they actually bought stations they started to buy stations and run them under aboriginal control and started to exercise and begin to experiment with forms of self-determination and community organization that provided a real inspiration you know, to people right across Australia. So, you know, it was, you know, a lot of the workers, they said, we never went back, right? We're still on strike. There's outstations, you know, in the Pilbara today where you go and talk to people and there's elders there who say, no, the strike's not over. We, we don't work for the squatters. <laughs> you know, We never went back, you know, but people did go back. And people couldn't be treated, you know, in the same in the same way, you know, that, that that you know that they had before. So, you know, certainly not wanting to say that, you know, some sort of ultimate victory or liberation. People, you know, well and truly, you know, continuing to suffer terrible racism, terrible conditions, still do today. You know, there's still, you know. Work schemes they've got set up today that treat Aboriginal people getting paid less than award wages out of the award system, you know, etc. So the battle is far from won. But I think you know the 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 message that the conditions could be transformed through organisation, through defiance, and through solidarity with the broader working class movement. It was a massive, you know, massive smashing blow to racism, to the pastoralists, you know, and to the system, you know, the, the racist capitalist system that's set up in Western Australia. Thank you. Yeah.